And then the cyclists come back having done less. <laughs> you guys come back having done less. <laughs> I was like, starting to lose my mind. <laughs> so again, the reason I get upset, it's not because there's certain outcome that we must hit. It's for the group experience that could have been there where everybody accumulates this insight and this growth of I am doing way more than I ever thought I could. This is amazing. And then looking at the other person going, isn't this amazing? Look at what you did today. And then taking that to another day. And then, oh my gosh, I, there's no way this morning when I woke up, I thought I could do what I did today. And I still did it. And that group flow, for lack of a better term right now, and that group accumulation of excitement and energy and passion and joy from that in a supportive, positive, memorable way, and the stories that come with it, that creates the experience. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Endurance and Pursuit of Potential podcast, formerly known as The Weekly Word. This podcast is about advancing the integration of mindset and performance. We do this by diving into the endurance lifestyle, the mindset, the supporting infrastructure for you to achieve endurance adventures, for you to be able to go out and do the adventures you're curious about, to follow through on that impulse to dream. What does it take? How does it work? Why not me? And what are all the ingredients to make this journey a successful one? We talk not only training topics for endurance events, performance, but also going deeper into the mindset that is beneficial in any area of life. Who can you be when you are pursuing your true potential? Endurance training and its adventures out there in nature bring us closer to places in ourselves that often go unvisited in modern life. And that's what I'm here to unlock for you on this podcast to discuss the endurance lifestyle with you along with all its ingredients and amazing changes it can bring about. Also, to answer some of the typical questions many of you may have on how to integrate this curiosity and dream with the reality of our everyday life and responsibilities. This week is a longer episode and mainly because I dive deep into our endurance training camp our ultra distance training camp that we had last month. Yes, it's been a month. I've been on the road traveling, doing a variety of different events, not only for myself, but also in service of others. And so this podcast is sort of a reflection back on how that camp went. Now you might find that some of the ways I describe and discuss the training camp are quite harsh or quite critical of the athletes, the participants. But that's because my desire for them to grow and to unlock potential and to see what they could have been is very deeply rooted in everything I do as a coach. When I work with athletes, with executives, with clients from all walks of life, even with some of the military operators, 
my goal is not the training and my goal is not the fitness. It's the integration of mindset on performance and performance in performance. Most of us already know what we need to do in order to be fit enough to perform at our current best. That's not the puzzle piece many are looking for. The puzzle piece many or most, excuse me, are looking for is how to integrate that in their day-to-day life. How to overcome that hurdle of, yeah, this is my life and that is all the training and how do I make those two things work so that I can still do the things regarding adventures that I'm looking to do as well as maintain a family, maintain a career, maintain some sort of community standing with regards to service or church or little league or whatever it is. And so this weekend that I described and you'll hear a lot about in the podcast is about taking so many people, in this case 12, out of their usual rhythm and really putting them into a place where they can discover how much they're capable of when all those other things, work, family, community, are not present. When you are able to be fed via a caterer, when you're getting massage, when you're getting coaching, when you have the infrastructure and SAG and support in place to give it your all, not your best, but your all for three straight days and to feel what that can do slingshot us not only in fitness and in mindset, but also in confidence and awakening and insight and learning and growth and expanding our reality into potential that we didn't know we had. So that's what that discussion, that's what that longer part of this podcast entails. After that, we dive into some email questions. And some of those are all across the board from nutrition and hydration strategy to how we go about training days to sodium needed during a workout. Or why do we train in zone two if we're racing in zone three? We talk about the five by one mile test again and what rest weeks truly mean for the body. We discuss alcohol during training blocks or during training in general and what it means to be on the edge of your comfort zone and why that's such an important place to be. I was telling David just the other day, I did a talk at one of the events I was at regarding fear and the boundaries of what we deem possible. And a lot of this goes into these topics I talk about on the podcast understanding what fear is, understanding the boundaries we've created for ourselves, and being able to take a step back and see where those thresholds, those boundaries are. And more importantly, understand that on the other side of those thresholds and those boundaries lies growth and opportunity and a new reality and a new normal that we settle into, that we expand ourselves, that we grow our capacity and turn into potential, continuing to create our becoming over our being. 
So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I know it's a little bit longer. Maybe you break it up in pieces, but I think uh, David cut it really well with capturing all the nuggets, tidbits, key parts of the discussion. It was a longer recording and he sort of tried to cut it into the, the, the pieces that are key. And again, I hope you enjoy it. Let me know of your questions. Let me know what you think. And, you know, quite honestly, as I always say, if you want to leave a review or any of that, I get it. That's fine. I'm not doing this podcast to necessarily have all this um, amazing growth. But what I would like from you is to let others know that you enjoy this podcast. Let others know that there is this platform with newsletters, this podcast, even my coaching or consultations that has a discussion around this unlocking of potential, this integration of mindset and performance. And again, just to help in service of helping others unlock, unleash, discover, rediscover a potential that I fully believe all of us have within us all the time. And we just need to find a way to tap into it and then integrate it into our daily lives and to make it a lifestyle and grow from there. We did an ultra camp and that was in Sonoma. It was three days long plus travel days on either end. And we had athletes come in for ultra running, for ultra triathlon and ultra paddling, stand up paddling. So uh, what the hell happened? (laughs) well first of all we had this wonderful camp in sonoma and the first thing that came up was how should i describe this in the nicest way we had a few participants who confused camp with endurance camp and then we had a few more that truly confused ultra endurance camp with camp and endurance camp So the surprise to them when they realized that they didn't come to camp, but to endurance camp, and then realizing that they didn't have a choice to do endurance camp that was not offered, but only do ultra endurance camp for them because the distance was way more than they've trained, way more than they were prepared for, way more than they've ever done slash been familiar with that it turned it into ultra endurance, even though there were participants at the camp who are familiar with those distances and it wouldn't even be ultra for them. It would just be, you know, an endurance day. So that was a a fun dynamic to work through. And, you know, as you saw, I don't take those things lightly or take to them kindly. And um, you gotta get the work done. And we didn't fly in, drive in, create this atmosphere for athletes to sort of say, yeah, no, I'll opt out today. I'll do some wine tasting and I'll get a massage. And so (laughs) that set the tone pretty early on day one. when We had some athletes who decided on their own to cut the bike ride short. When we had other athletes who decided... They weren't going to do the full distances of the camp or even 
participate properly in the format of the camp. And yeah, it's uh, very clear in the communication that I put out there on what this is. I even put the format out there, meaning the distances and the mindset with regards to preparing for six to eight hours of training for three straight days and learning who it is we are and who we become not after one day of six to eight hours of training because while yes that's pretty awesome but two days completely different animal and now in that exhaustion waking up on day three and doing it again that's where you start getting a sense, an understanding, an insight, a taste of what ultra-endurance, multi-day stage races, um, just that type of fatigue where after 50 miles or 60 or 70 miles of running, you still have 10 hours to go. And uh, that's what we were trying to create with the ultra-endurance camp. And I would give myself and the group a B <laughs> on that. I think we had a few people who took it on, but it's nothing new to them. So it was easier for them to take on. We had a couple of others who came in prepared with the right mindset, were willing to observe themselves to push beyond their usual training. We had actually no one who truly came in with the full, I am going to do whatever is asked of me and I'm going to trust Chris that on the other side of this, the training and the stimulus and the growth and the mindset and the nutrition and hydration and the, the work that I've done as a full picture will be clear to me. And that was uh, somewhat bothersome to me, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, in, in, in a nutshell, that was Endurance Camp, AIMP, Sonoma, Ultra Endurance Camp, and or Ultra Distance Camp, whatever we want to call it. I would say the, the paddler was the only person who took their own training to another level of, I'm just going to find out what's on the other side of this. But what do you think? I think you're right that everyone, including myself, went short of the published distances. And my question is this. Um, you mentioned to me that there were really two parts to camp. One is the actual participation. And then the second part is the reflection that happens after everyone goes home. And so here's my question for the individuals. Let's just focus on the triathlon uh, aspect of the camp, for example, even though we also had cyclists, runners and paddlers. But what did you experience as far as their realization in a way that might be useful to other people? Well, all of them. I think everybody comes out of these camps and that part was achieved, realizing they're capable of so much more than they thought that it's not a linear projection. My training therefore equals that I can do this distance. No, um, that's not how the body works. That's not how the mind works. That's not how endurance works. That's how none of this works. 
So just because your longest bike ride so far is a 60 mile bike ride, you're capable of a 120 mile bike ride with 9,000 feet of climbing. The challenge that I presented to everybody is how you show up the next day. And this is the thing I say in, in the microcosm of triathlon, Ironman triathlon, and I say in the bigger picture of this, of like this weekend, and that is anybody can do one day big. Anybody. And we're talking anybody from Oprah to, um, you know, Jim Wamsley, right? Famous mm-hmm. ultra runner. For those of you that don't know him, I think most of you know Oprah. That's not the challenge. Showing up again and again and again. That's the challenge. That's where really the hardship and adversity really hits you in the face. When you wake up like some of our athletes did on day three, beat up, sweaty, swollen, exhausted, achy, sore, and you still have to get on that bike again for an 85-mile bike ride, that's your mind. That's your strength that you're building of mindset. How you face adversity defines who you are. And that's a perfect little example of how you can advance yourself in a controlled environment with SAG support, with plenty of food and nutrition via caterer, and we have plenty of food out there, with massage, with comfortable beds, like everything's set up, the perfect infrastructure. But yet one would choose not to do that? That's where I, um, even after the camp and the downloads with the athletes, where I pushed back hard on athletes. Like, this was a great opportunity for you to push boundaries that you have never touched on before. And how many years will it take for you to be in that exact same situation again? Where will you have an outside individual, let's say like me, or even a group of people to push you really to those limits. Here's the other thing. For those that went through it now, now they have a trigger from the past of how tired they were and their body and their subconscious is going to avoid that. It's going to protect itself from that because it doesn't want to be that tired again. Only in the newness of it could you discover that you're capable of more, like we said on the bike ride on day three, where I was like, just get on the bike and you'll find out that it's not as bad as the image and the pain that you're creating in your mind that it'll be. And I've been doing this for 25 years. Never has an athlete come back and gone, that was way worse than I thought it would be. It's always been either that wasn't that bad at all, actually I felt great, or it was nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And that's the bummer. The point here is that I want the athlete to experience that. I know they can. I already know they can do it. That's not the challenge. I've seen it enough. And I know I've experienced it plenty. I want them to experience that. I want them to have that aha moment, that almost um, it's, it's an empowering overwhelming rush of positive emotions where you're like, I can't believe I just did that. I'm flying home from California back to the East Coast 
you know, sinking into my seat on the plane going, I can't believe the distances and the things I was capable there this weekend. And I am a changed person in the beliefs of what I can do. This whole thing, this whole endeavor is about unlocking endurance potential. Take the endurance out of it, actually. Unlocking human potential. And endurance and athletics is only a small venue where we can sort of apply ourselves in a, on a smaller field, playing field. But when it comes to life, it applies the exact same way. And where can we test that? Where can we do scenario-based training like this? Where can we live out these scenarios other than in an environment like this? What were people saying on the morning of day three to you? And what were you seeing in their body language? <laughs> well, a few didn't even come into the house to tell me that they weren't doing the day's training. They instead went off and did their own trail run. So that alone says to me that they know they should be, but they are avoiding facing the shadow of their own knowledge, of their own instincts that I'm all the way out here from the East Coast and I'm going to instead go for a trail run, which I've already done before. Um, you know, I have strong opinions about that. But that being said, they missed an opportunity. And we talked about it after once they returned home. They missed an opportunity to find out what would, could, might have been available to them. Mm -hmm. Instead, they played out what they are familiar with. They played out, I will go for a trail run. I know what that feels like tired because I did that two days ago after a two and a half hour swim. That's safe. That's familiar. That's control. So that was a minor fraction of the group who were not participating on that third day. Mm -hmm. But for those who showed up and did end up participating, what were they thinking? They had an amazing time. But what were they thinking before they started? They were tired too. They were exhausted as well. Like we know one guy, he's, you know, he's not really in the shape that he is known he can be to himself. He's joined us on the coast ride and had a wonderful time. And he came to this quite out of shape and quite nervous. But he had already made up his mind prior. There's no way I'm missing this because my life at home is so busy and so overwhelming. And here I have the freedom to just ride my bike all day. And I don't care how I feel. It's still better than what I would be doing alternatively at home. And allowing himself to let go, to let go. That's sort of the, the key here. Let go of expectation. Let go of how you think you'll feel. Let go and just be. And guess what? As I've been saying for months on end, the body knows what to do. You get on your bike, you start pedaling. We see this on the coast ride every year. People come in shelled on day one or two or three. They wake up the next day. They're exhausted. They start pedaling. 
and they settle in, and the body knows what to do. And they ride another 120 miles that day. Sure, it might be a bit slower. Sure, day three on the bike compared to the other days was slower at camp. But that's that's fine. You're doing the work. And you're allowing your body to do the work that it knows how to do versus bringing the story and the concerns and the worries of the mind with it. You got to do the work. And in that work, you learn more about yourself. I've been saying this quote for the last few days on a bunch of phone calls with athletes that I've had. Action removes doubt. Action removes doubt. In your doing, you are answering doubtful questions. Doubt disappears with action. Because you're present in the moment and the doubts go away because you're actually doing, being, versus not taking action and creating more of a story. You said that to me the other day. I was being a baby about something, and you said 90% of the time, action is the answer. And that was that. Yeah. Because we can create a better and better story in our mind the more we sit with that story. But get out doing and things get answered. And like I've said to you before, and I've said to many others before, even in the act of doing something that you're actually realizing, eh, this is not really what I want to be doing. You're growing and learning because guess what? Now you know what you don't want to be doing because you acted upon it versus hypothesized and wondered and worried and thought about it. No, there's no outcome in thinking. There's outcome in action. And being specific about what type of action for the, I'm thinking about the compulsive athlete who is just going through the same old motion, staying in their safety zone, but it still feels like they're doing something. And you would probably say to that, no, that is not the type of action. I'm talking about the action that makes you feel uncomfortable and thus will elicit growth. That's the action. Well, that's not always, we don't always aren't, we aren't always able to show up like that. But if majority of the time, you're not just checking a box, think of your day. Am I just going through the motions? Am I just checking a box because I should be doing this? Or am I showing up with intention, right? We, we, I know we can dive into the intention conversation a hundred times and, you know, it's that important to me. It allows us to live in the present. You're fully engaged when you're fully in the moment and you're in action and with intention. Because guess what? When you do something with intention, there's a challenge to it. It's challenging to you. It requires your cognitive and physical power in order to do it. And it pulls you into the present. You can't think about the future or the past if it's a challenging task that you're in the moment doing. And that's what's beautiful about it. You're in the present moment. You're fully aware of your current present moment. And that's the start of a eventually a flow state. If it's challenging enough, <laughs> you'll get there, right? It's got to be on the edge of the challenge skill threshold. Now, training isn't always that. But the right training with the right intention will create that for sure. 
because even the easiest of drills can be very challenging if you're doing them technically sound and with perfect form and really thinking through how your body's working and your breathing and your footwork and your posture and, and, and. But the value in that, just not, not wasting your limited time, right? It, or just, and it's not even wasting time. What are you doing that you could be doing otherwise if, if you're just showing up and going through the motions? There's so much, our most precious resource is time. So why would we not do everything we do with a very focused awareness of intention and clarity? and purpose once again. I want to circle back to the camp and uh, we made it sound like a bit of a dumpster fire and I definitely saw it not being a stunning example of everyone rising to the challenge. Um, But I did see that, for example, on day one, everyone did a much longer swim than they thought they were gonna do and then did a trail run. Yeah, exactly. It started great. I was very impressed with the swimmers. And it kept going great. So Yeah. And I thought that would be the trigger, right? That people already realized, wow, I just swam for two and a half hours straight. And the longest I've ever swum is an hour and a half, right? And in, in an open water lake situation, wetsuit, cooler temperatures, and so forth. But again, doing one day big isn't the challenge. That's not what we're here for. And you, you see that in your running, like you and the runner did, um, the idea was to do three fifty Ks, a 50 K a day for three days. Mm-hmm. And you can go into it from there, but you guys also started lighter. We did. And yeah. then we pushed to 50 K the next day, but. The clarity of what this camp was was clear to everybody and to you and the runners that this is a 50K on day one. So then the cyclists come back having done less. <laughs> you guys come back having done less. <laughs> I was like starting to lose my mind. <laughs> so again, the reason I get upset It's not because there's certain outcome that we must hit. It's for the group experience that could have been there where everybody accumulates this insight and this growth of, I am doing way more than I ever thought I could. This is amazing. And then looking at the other person going, isn't this amazing? Look at what you did today and then taking that to another day. And then, oh my gosh, there's no way this morning when I woke up, I thought I could do what I did today and I still did it. And that group flow, for lack of a better term right now, and that group accumulation of excitement and energy and passion and joy from that in a supportive, positive, memorable way and the stories that come with it, that creates the experience. And then when we're at dinner at the restaurant on day three, Saturday evening, and you have this euphoric like energy and momentum, that was the desired outcome I was looking for with everybody. And I knew I'd put people into the camp that were this was not going to be that big of a deal with because I trained with them. 
or they've trained with me in the past and they know what it's like when I say, guys, we're going to have a couple of big days. Like we do this for a week to eight days in a row. Went 120, 130 miles a day on the bike and running off the bike or the next morning, a long swim and then a long bike ride. And then the next day, you know, 20 mile run with a 60 mile bike ride in the afternoon. And like, it's just a huge week. And it's back to the concepts of ultra endurance. And that is who you are on day one. You're preparing for who you're going to be on day four. Who I am in hour three of this run is I'm preparing myself in energy and fuel and mindset, nutrition, and in hydration on who I'm going to be in hour 18, in hour 26 of this 100-mile run, or whatever it is. That's the point of ultra-endurance, caring and observing and nurturing your body for who it'll be in 6, 12, 18, 20 hours from now, 2, 3, 4, 5 days from now. When we've worked with tour riders in the past, like it's not a question of week one. Week one, yeah, you get through it and you avoid crashes and minimum damage on the body and you nourish yourself. You almost ride yourself, like which many elite tour riders have done. They ride themselves into tour shape in the first week because it doesn't matter. You can lose the race on week one, yes. But if you stay within the pack and in your world and where you need to be, it makes no difference. It's who you are on week three, who you are in the back half of week two, who you are strategically when you get to the mountains that this race starts to unfold. And that, even, and in order for a race to unfold, it's who am I going to be when I get to day 17, when I get you know, to day 14. What am I doing today to prepare myself for day 14? Mentally, physically, hydration, fueling, output, strategically, all those things. And it's the same thing in stage racing, running. It's the same thing in ultra running long runs. It's the same thing what I do with 29029 events. And I talk to the people on the mountain, the athletes on the mountain. I'm like, this is a 36 hour event. What you're doing at 8 a.m. right now affects who you're going to be this afternoon at 4 p.m. And who you are at 4 p.m. affects who you're going to be tomorrow morning at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night still hiking. How you care for yourself now. And so this endurance camp, again, gives us a little insight, allows us to see that person that we're not in our everyday lives. And to discover a human and a mindset and a potential within us that is like, wow. I can do that. This is a really important point that I want to dive into uh, that you just made, that endurance operates over really long time scales and everything feeds into everything. And let's make it more concrete. So one way this shows up among many is with um, recovery for example, and that can be tied to eating. So you know, you know as well as I do that you can go out and do a 120-mile bike ride and you don't really need to nail your 300 calories an hour. You don't really need to nail your full hydration one liter an hour or more. You don't really need to get your sodium dialed in. You'll be fine. You'll be able to finish it. But yeah, and I can even have four or five beers when I'm done. Correct. And people do that too. And, and the point is 
you can do that, but and that won't affect the ride very much at all. You'll get through it. You'll feel strong. You'll feel like a hero. You'll go to sleep with a big smile on your face. Like, look, I can get away with lots of things. It's the two weeks later, the three weeks later, where those choices smack you in the face profoundly hard. And this is this is the nature of my training lately. This is the challenge, is to not do stupid things, even though I can get away with them all day long, um, because I will pay for them on the ultra time on the endurance time scale we're talking weeks and months and you know this goes into nutrition that you can go swing by the donut shop after as some people do or you can um you know go eat some nondescript burritos after but if you actually attend to proper nutrition then a month later all of a sudden you start seeing all the cracks show up or not show up and again, we've talked about this too, is it's not what you did yesterday on where you're looking at your training going, huh, why am I flat? Why am I getting sick? Why am I not progressing? It's what, like you're saying, what you did two weeks ago when you overreached just a bit or you pushed a bit too hard with a buddy of yours because you wanted to show them how strong you are. It's the accumulation of doing it a bit too hard or sticking in the wrong zone, or not taking care of your fueling and hydration, or not getting enough sleep, or, 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 that then shows up. Eventually, those cracks in the armor, that will, it will break, the dam will break. And every time you don't take care of yourself properly, you're putting another crack in the dam. It's so interesting. It's like chess. It's like eight moves ahead chess. It's hard for the yeah. human brain to comprehend. Yeah, but you could also do the, all the little things every day. And yes. then that way, when the big days happen, you can actually slip a little bit because you do enough of the right things all the time. Right? That's sort of how I go about it. Whereas I know my nutrition is pretty dialed. I know my hydration is pretty dialed. I know my training is pretty consistent. So that when I come into things I'm not trained for, like coast rides or whatever uh, it is, I know that I can rely on past experience for the fitness to sort of navigate myself through and partially ride myself into shape. But I also know that the overload the sudden overload of stress with regards to physical stress of a coast ride is going to be okay because I came in with, you know, good fuel, good hydration, good lifestyle choices in the bank. And so this is a big spike in the system for sure, but I don't need to clean myself up for it. Gosh, so many thoughts. To give a, another practical example, I have a marathoner that we coach and great athlete, very motivated, does his workouts. He's great. And, you know, I, I get a very common piece of feedback from athletes, which is, why aren't we going harder? Like, I can do more. I can, I held back so much in this workout. It felt like I could have easily done more reps or more sets or whatever. And four days later, the person pops a hip injury. And it's like, that's why. Or is sick. Or this isn't about, again, we want to achieve the desired outcome on event day. And this go hard or go home approach, that doesn't work for endurance. 
And we have this like image of how, you know, some of the elites as if they're training hard or killing themselves or like the, the Lionel Sanders on his compu trainer or whatever kicker and his den just sweating and grinding it out. Yeah. Okay. That's maybe 60 seconds. That's maybe, um, after an hour of steady zone three work or threshold work, like it's never that hard. It's just more the accumulation and as well as it's for the YouTube effect. But um, this stuff is all about consistency over time, right? And those that consistently can show up with intention in their training on a daily basis over many months and then into years, they will succeed. It's that simple. That's the beauty of endurance training. You don't need to know how to dunk a basketball because, or uh, you don't need to be stuck not being able to dunk a basketball because you're just not tall enough. With endurance, you can get there. That's the crazy thing is you can continue to improve. God, it's so boring. You know, you go it's on YouTube so boring. and yeah. you see the, the Billy Yang video of Leadville or you see Nick Bear completing a hundred mile race and there's this great music and it's overcoming hurdles. And you're like, this is exciting. It's like, no, it's the least exciting thing in the world. Well, yeah, the day is exciting, but what they don't see is the training. Exactly. That's the least exciting part in the world. It's like, oh, it's so interesting. It's so cool though, because if you're a nerd and you like multivariate problem solving and pattern recognition, which, you know, I'm kind of a dork like that, it is the ultimate, like you can never get bored doing this. It's a lifestyle. Either you're in it for the lifestyle or you're in it for the finish line. And you know what? The finish line is only going to give you so much gratification. After a while, you're going to have to figure out either it's a lifestyle or not, or you'll move on and you'll start doing Spartan stuff or whatever. Or I mean, And then there's nothing bad about that. I'm just saying you're going to look for the next trigger. You're going to look for the next dopamine hit because the finish line, the dopamine hit goes away, you know, pretty quickly. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, we've seen a lot of athletes do that. They wash out and go back to CrossFit or whatever the heck they're into, and that's and it's totally fine. It might work better for them, and they might get um, a better example of dopamine uh, or you know high from it. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's totally nothing wrong with that. But for those athletes that feel that endurance lifestyle, how deep and powerful it can be after you sat with it and done it for a long enough time, it can stick with you for life and create a platform that you're adventure ready for anything, anything. And that is a sweet spot to be in. And it doesn't take that long of an investment that when your buddies ask you to do, uh, you know, 80 mile mountain bike adventure in Moab, you can say yes. And if another buddy asks you or your friends ask you to do a running um, trip in Yosemite over three, four days, and it's 25 miles a day in beautiful territory, you can say yes. That there's a fun triathlon you want to do with your friends, you can say yes. And those are easy pivots that you can just do tomorrow. And it's not that much training, not at all, but you need a platform and you need a willingness to embrace a lifestyle that revolves around consistency. 
and navigating the limited training time you have with a very specific approach. And that is, I am going to do this because I said I would. There's no negotiating with myself. This is who I am. Done. If anything, the feeling I have in my stomach when I don't get the train, the agitation, the irritation, the impatience I have when I'm not doing something or I missed something, that's a clear indicator that I need this. I need this energy. I need to fill my cup before I empty it every day, whether at work or for my family or both or for community or whatever it is. But fill my cup. And how do I fill my cup? That's fine. Some people with CrossFit, some people doing different things, some people with playing chess, some people with, you know, gardening. It's totally fine. Whatever you fill your cup with, I totally can relate to that. But one, consistently fill your cup. Love that. That's key. And then B, what do you feel alive with? Where do you feel you're tapping into human potential, your physical potential? where you're expressing yourself in ways that you didn't even know you had because in daily life, this is not something that really has an opportunity to shine and express itself. And that's the fun of endurance. It's how we're wired to be. When we hit a big open space, what do we want to do? We want to be active in it. When we see big mountain vistas or big, huge meadows or big, huge lakes or a super long beach. Do we want to just stand in place? No, our body immediately wants to walk or hike or run or swim or be active in it. Those are signals and subconscious activities that you do not even know you can turn off. I wish we had gone a little nicer on camp with regard to the fact that people did do. No, no, it's good. They, they know my coaching comes with expectations. I'm not, I'm, there's no hugs, handshakes, or high fives. No, no, not that kind of thing. Uh, but that people did go. And- Nobody got a hug, a high five, or a handshake on that camp. Well, Eric did. That guy got it. Okay. That guy freaking crushed it for a complete newbie who didn't even know how to clip. He fell over on his bike three times at the camp because he forgot to unclip. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right? Like the perfect example of somebody who showed up at camp open-minded, a big dude, former D1 lacrosse player, successful athlete, looks like the guy who walks into a room and can do anything. But he was willing to be vulnerable from the first moment he stepped into the water. He put on the wetsuit, didn't even know how to put on a wetsuit. But he immediately allowed me to show him how to put on that. He was, oh, I could tell within seconds he was open to learning. And he swam great. He did the longest run he's ever done. And then he went on to, you know, that was his day one. And he was like, that was amazing. I didn't think I would keep up swimming. I thought I'm the slowest swimmer. He was up front with Jeff. And then he moved on to day two. He rode one of the hardest bike rides you can do in Northern California with some really, really good cyclists in our group that I've gone on some serious cycling adventures with. He was right there with them. Not that he was like trying to race him, but he was just sort of doing his thing. With an inadequate bike fit. (laughs) With an inadequate bike fit. And like I said to you earlier, he fell over at three intersections. 
because he forgot to unclip or he doesn't know really how to unclip. This is how new the guy is. The bike fit was so terrible on day one. I didn't tell you this. His bike fit was so bad. I would say it was not exaggerating six inches to six centimeters too low his seat. I kept raising it, kept raising it, kept raising it. We raised it so far that we determined that his bike frame doesn't fit. They sold him a bike frame at the shop that's too small for him. So on the Cervelo, we lifted the bike seat post so far out that it's technically on the edge of its threshold, right? Where stability. That's how low they set him up because there's tape on it. So we raised that and he was so happy because after a 115 mile bike ride with almost 9,000 feet of, well, it might've been 9,000 feet of elevation gain. He came back and said, I feel better today than I did on a three hour bike ride at home. That was flat because he was on sitting on a bike that was made for a, you know, 12 year old. Jesus. Now throw into it. He showed up on day three. No questions asked. Had a great ride. He went home from camp. His confidence is sky high for his first Ironman. He now is going to train completely different going into all the next months of training or weeks of training. I mean, he had the endurance experience. He sees, saw how other people train. He learned and absorbed from them and heard the mindset. And he really asked the right questions, really into it, but not completely like I'm diving fully in. He was just quiet and he observed, but he did all the work. And he was so happy because he's like, I actually belong. I feel good about belonging. And before he's like, I felt like an imposter. I didn't know what I was doing. I felt terrible. But he had that weekend. He had that experience that I wanted everybody to have. But that was one person in a vacuum, right? Not necessarily a vacuum because the others weren't. But that's just an example of what this a weekend like this can do for the rest of his training and his experience in endurance sports where he's so brand new that he's falling out over at intersections on his bike because he's forgetting to clip out. And we've all been there when once you forget and you're already tilting over, mm-hmm. better go just go down. Right, but he, he's yeah. So he's like, well, oops, forgot to un- unclip. How great is that? That's, that's the best attitude I've ever heard. That's amazing. I, it was amazing. I, that's letting go, and that's showing up and being like, I'm open to experience this, and to find out who I actually can be, and what potential lies within me, and I'm going to trust Chris because he says I can, and you know, you were there. I don't shy away from you guys. I am confident you can. Today was awesome. Let's do it again tomorrow. And I believe you can. I wouldn't put anybody into these situations if I don't believe they can. I'm driving around in a car or a truck following them. I can see what they're able to do. I swam with them in a kayak or I, I kayaked with them. I can see what they can do. I ran with them. I can see what they can do. So I can extrapolate out of that what I believe they're capable of. So that's camp. That's what I believe is achievable and available for everybody that shows up. You just have to be willing to be open, to grow, to learn, to be vulnerable, to trust. And action. Action replaced his doubt. This email that I received from one of my athletes really clarifies the difference between elite athletes and professional athletes and what we're all trying to do. 
And there's a variety of points in this email, but I wanted to highlight a few of them. And one of the things I wrote her, and that's a key sentence here, is the elites and us are looking for different outcomes. We aren't them and they aren't us. And there's a lot in there because the elites are looking for a result, meaning at the front of the race, they're looking for sponsors, they're looking for prize money, they're looking for golden tickets, they're looking for you know, uh, bonuses, they're looking for all kinds of different things, whereas we're looking for our best possible outcome. And how we're going about this and how we fit in our training and who we are at the start line versus who they are at the start line is completely different as well. How they prepare, how they train, their infrastructure, their support mechanisms with us, with regards to family, with regards to work and the daily stresses in our life and the training that we are fitting in versus the training we're not fitting in. And so this creates a, a completely backwards understanding of what that elite or that group of professionals or those best in class, how they're doing things and what they're recommending is completely, in I would say in most cases, unapplicable to us, how they go about fueling, how they go about their hydration during races, how they go about, you know, in their recovery or in their strength training. It's all completely different, again, because this is their job. This is how they spend their time. This is how they recover differently. This is how their days unfold versus us with full-time jobs and full-time families. And don't get me wrong, many of them might still also have a secondary job and so forth, but they're putting their primary effort and cognitive load and energy and daily focus into their athletic outcomes. And the other stuff is a side hustle, a support in order to continue to fulfill the dream of achieving said outcomes at their highest highest potential of their life. And I would challenge most master's athletes to tell me, you are looking to achieve the highest potential of your life in this athletic endeavor. You are looking to be at the top of your game from an Ironman perspective, maybe in your age group versus your own class. Okay, possibly. And even then, that's a challenging number to work around because you too are most likely working and have kids or have responsibilities and community and other things going on than just spending all day training, recovering, massage, eating, drinking, um, fueling, and so forth. So this is more about an athlete that emailed me with a surprise understanding that elites recommend certain nutrition or hydration. And that's something we have to be careful of in all aspects, whether an, an NBA player does this, an NFL player does this, and any type of sponsored athlete recommending something. I wonder what's best for me and how that works. And so, for example, in ultra running, right, what a head of the pack, lead of the pack, what they need for fueling and hydrating is completely different than what we need as we're hiking hills, as we allow our heart rate to get lower. We're not doing a threshold event. They are. They're looking to win. And guess what? In most cases, 
when the professionals or the elites at the front aren't having a good day, they back off and they move on to another event where they might be having a good day. So they save their body for the next event in order to still have some sort of result, payout, get points, and so forth for what they need. Do we have that choice? How often have we sort of stopped in the middle of the race or at an aid station and said, I don't know, I'm out here. I need to stay fresh and recovered. I don't have it today. I'll come back next week or in two weeks from now or go to that Ironman or travel around the world to that other 70.3. Or, you know, I have another bike race to do next weekend where I can get the result I'm looking for. So we already have a completely different outcome in mind. We aren't them, they aren't us. They don't walk and hike the hills where they have time to fuel and hydrate, to return to running threshold and so forth. We do in ultra running. They're looking to blow up the field oftentimes in triathlon on the bike bike leg. And so their threshold numbers, not because of the numbers, but because of how hard they're riding in order to blow the legs off of the runners in the field so that when they get off the bike, they can run a normal run versus the runners coming and catching them because their legs are still fresh enough that they can um, exploit their strength, which might be for the runners, obviously the run. And so if we don't fatigue those legs now, we don't stand a chance at winning anyways. So we might as well blow their legs off now on the bike portion of the Ironman so that they can't run their 239 to 242 marathon on the back end. Hopefully, because we rode hard enough as a group, not drafting, but pacing, which is a whole different nuance, we now have fatigued them enough because they have to keep up. If the gap gets too big, even if they run a 239, they're not going to be able to close that gap. They'll run out of real estate, so they're going to keep their gap pretty calculated on where they're going to be in the field and so forth, that's a different race than we're doing. We're doing a race where it's steady. And you keep holding steady until you get as close to the finish line as you can. And how far back from the finish line does our race, the amateur race, your individual race begin? Because you can start throwing caution to the wind because you've made it to 10 miles out. You've made it to five miles from the finish line. You've made it to two miles from where you can just, okay, Stop the calculating. I can just go run now or I can push harder. I'm close enough to the finish line. And as your fitness grows as an amateur, you push that point further and further back. The point where you can start racing to the finish line becomes earlier and earlier in the race. That's after many years of doing said endurance endeavor. So what you need for fueling and hydration at the effort level that we're going at is not what the pros are doing. And so if you're taking your cues from the pros, I'd be very careful with that. And throw into this after 25 years just in this sports arena, let alone another 25 years in the swimming arena, You'd be surprised how many athletes at the elite level still don't know what they're talking about and still don't have a clue on nutrition and still don't have a clue on hydration because all the while they've been just sort of 
supporting sponsors and doing this and doing that. They were young enough that their body can tolerate all the junk that they're doing. Um, they're fit enough from their training that the mistakes that they make can be concealed. Things like that. But just keep that in mind. Just because the pros are doing something doesn't mean it's going to be effective for you. And at our effort levels and our output, it's going to be different on our stomach on with regards to fueling and hydration than it is for them at the front. We don't seem to do that or think that in marathons, or maybe some people do or too many do. In comparing our 212 marathoner or 205 marathoner and how they're running, to a 3.30 marathoner. Do I drink my liquid fuel out of the bottle at um, certain aid stations the way they do? They're getting ready for a two-hour threshold or above-threshold event. We're getting ready for a three-and-a-half-hour to four-hour, you know, below-threshold event. Yeah, Z3, Z2, yeah. <laughs> so it's a big difference. But we seem to think that in ultra-running or in Ironman triathlon, or in super long bike rides, multi-day stage races, long mountain bike, multi-day stage races. So again, thinking what is the desired outcome I want and how am I going about my day and what do I need versus just following what some of the pros are doing. Are there any really concrete examples that you can give? Well, I mean, it's been like this for... 20 plus years where you would see, let's say, I can think of a famous female triathlete and she won Kona a couple times and she would say, or she did the entire race on like 20 to 26 or 28 gels. And so other people are like, well, if she can do it, well, first of all, she's out there four hours less than you are. <laughs> and and it's also, I'm not even sure that she did. We don't know that, right? It might be a sponsor, which it was, but also, you know, how she trained for that and when does she strategically take that? And like I like to always say, gels and chews and stuff, and especially in the ultra running world, they're supplemental to the calories we're taking in. So I find it's a really good strategy for us at our lower intensities and that is all right i had a bar i had a peanut butter and jelly square or whatever they have at the aid stations or i had some peanut butter filled pretzels and so forth and that still wasn't enough so i'm going to supplement with a gel or i'm going to supplement with some chews or i'm going to supplement with some calories in my bottle but all that has to be tested and be well understood and then throw into it that you know there's also side effects at certain intensities of foods, like the, the effect of a gel on my body and my stomach and my system at threshold or above is different than a gel on my body and my system at a comfortable aerobic pace. A really fun way to think about this is heat. And if you if your body gets hot, then you physically cannot digest with the ease that you can when you're colder. And when you look at people running these races really fast, they are burning literally so hot that the things that you would eat as a middle packer that would sustain you quite well would 
make them vomit or, or something. Yeah, and you know, you also have to consider like um, when you eat, especially gels, sugars, you require um, it has a dehydrating effect in your gut, and so if you're not careful with that. You think you're fueling and hydrating right, but because you're dehydrating yourself in, at the cellular level with taking in gels, it's having a counter effect. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of re really religious hydration required if you're going to be on a gel protocol. Yeah, and then throw into the next mix. How many times do athletes incorrectly mix the concentration on their bottles? I just had it at camp like that. Like there's a reason the packaging is written like that. And why, if you don't stick to that exactly, then the data and the science they're selling you on the labeling is out the window because your mixing is not in the ratios that they tested it at, which means it might have a completely different effect on your gut. And they, they, they test these things in very tight parameters. So if it says one scoop of XYZ with 500 milliliters of water, and you do two scoops with 800 milliliters of water, well, guess what? You're out the window. Now, it still might work. I'm not saying it doesn't work, but I'm saying you don't know. It doesn't now do as advertised. Mm -hmm. Hit the performance gains or the sodium effects or the absorption effect or the electrolyte effect or addressing sweat issues effect that you're looking for. Fair. Compromised. So if I'm not going to do it right, or how people say, oh, well, if one scoop's good, two scoops are better. Like, all right, you just ruined it. Yeah, that can get you in trouble. <laughs> You, you might end up with a bottle that's undrinkable while you're out of water, which is a thing that I've experienced many times. That's fun. Yeah. So there's so much confusion around all of this. And as soon as we step away from the exact science of it, it becomes very tricky. How long does a long run need to be before I need to bring water? Well, extrapolate that to bike or, well, bike is so much easier, but any endurance activity where you're sweating well what well, a lot of people bring plenty of water on their bike and they don't drink it yeah or not enough because they only have two bottle cages and they're like well that's the maximum it's like oh boy well again it's also about teaching yourself how to drink and how to drink frequently and allowing your body to absorb the hydration needs as well as when you tell somebody when they're just starting out I need you to drink 28 ounces of water per hour. Their jaw basically falls off their face. But over time, they learn how to drink more frequently and they up the amount that they actually can get down effectively without feeling bloated from, you know, sometimes from 12 to 14 ounces an hour to 30 ounces an hour over, you know, a year. But that takes time. That takes practice. And to return to the signals that your body is sending you with regards to thirst and what they are. Hmm, my watch is tighter on my arm. I wonder what that could be. Oh, that just seems to happen when I work out. Oh, that's a big no, one. That's a signal, right? So, and the other thing, you know, if you're in a cool environment, your needs are going to be different than if you're in a hot and humid 80 degree, 80 plus degree environment. 
because you're probably already coming in with a core temperature that's pretty high. So if there's no standard to say that Florida is going to be the same as Montana. But as we've said with everything with regards to nutrition and hydration during events, is you want to have a minimum viable amount so that you can say you can knock off on your list of why things are going wrong. Hydration is one of them. And, you know, for, let's say, a reasonably small runner, let's say under 110 pounds, you probably can get by with 20 ounces of water per hour, starting after about 45 minutes to an hour. And that's um, 0.6 liters. That's 600 milliliters. So for those who are not fluent in ounces... But for most everybody else, it's 24 to 8, 28 ounces. And, you know, you can comfortably do two bottles an hour if it's in a really hot environment, in a humid environment, and you're a high super sweater. Easily. Yeah, that's only a liter. But I would say after about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes is when you definitely should have brought water. Any run longer than an hour and 20 minutes, you should bring water or have a water source along the way. Because, and and even then, I would say come in well hydrated. If you're coming in dehydrated because you haven't been drinking enough during the day, which most people don't do anyway, half your body weight in ounces is your daily water requirement, sans exercise, not including exercise water. You will need more water in case you come in low on hydration or not properly hydrated pre. Now, oftentimes I can recommend or do this for myself where that I'll just have a big glass of water 10 minutes before I go for a run. And I know that'll carry me for that first hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes. But then if I go longer, if I go an hour and a half, I have a water source along the way or I'm running with a bottle. How do you handle sodium? Well, again, I think that's a, a tricky area because you need to know what you personally need. And you've seen over time what your needs are. You've done some testing around that. You see where you feel best. Then you include whether it's the 500 or 1,000 milligrams of sodium and what time frame and how quickly you need it. Do you, are you a super secretor of sodium and water? Because that's a delicate balance. Are you just sodium and not a heavy sweater? Are you a heavy sweater with not a lot of sodium in your sweat? Are you a heavy sweater with a lot of sodium in your sweat? Or are you a low sw- sodium and low sweater? So there's a variety of scenarios to work through. And so from that, you also understand your needs and your sweating sort of requirements and fueling and hydrating needs from that. And Precision Fuel has great online uh, tests for that. And then they also have centers around the country where you can go in and they put you on a machine where it tests your sweat. You don't have to come in with a sample. It creates a little patch on your arm that will create heat and a sweating spot, and it will analyze the data or the ingredients or the um, severity of your sweat and the sodium in it, and will give you exact number of what you need. So science like that is critical. Now, I realize not everybody has that, but it's good data for whether you use precision fuel or not. (laughs) 
Like it's just good to know and have. It's so important to know your sodium number in my opinion. And I also find it moves around and how one loads with sodium before the run in relation to the amount of water they're consuming, that can be a big factor. I've started races where I didn't have enough sodium in me and had to front load a ton just to catch up. And then later in the race, had to dial it back a little bit. So that can look like as much as a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter of water consumed per hour, and then dialing it back all the way to 600 milligrams of sodium per liter of water consumed. I'm just putting numbers to this to illustrate that, A, that's a lot of sodium. And a great trick that I got from your partner, Emily, on the nutrition side is you want to be careful with salt pills because you can't actually taste the salt. And one of the ways your body will talk to you is by telling you whether sodium tastes good or tastes bad. And if you drink your electrolyte and it tastes really bland or really uninteresting, you probably don't need more sodium at that moment. Conversely, um, if you drink sodium and it tastes amazing, you probably need more sodium. And then other things to pay attention to, how quickly water flows through you or doesn't whether you're peeing or not. Yeah, but on all of it, it's your it's trial and error, right? And in, it's an awareness and an understanding and an ability to observe and take note of what your body does and needs. And that's the most important thing for all of this, for the training, for the nutrition, for the fueling. And that's why simulations and scenario-based training is so important. Because eventually you just get to a point where there are no question marks. And all this worrying and nerves prior to an event can actually go away. You can just focus on your best performance. If you've upped the risk and the complexity of the simulation enough over time, come event day, you're able to A, risk a lot because you're, you're close to the edge that you've already risked in simulation. And B, you know yourself well enough and your toolbox of experience has grown so much that the event is not the question mark, your effort is. And you can show up with effort. What do you think about numbers on all this stuff, keeping track of the actual numbers, as opposed to just, well, I just took this package of this and that, and I don't know, what kind of worked out? Well, yeah, well, that's exercise versus training, right? It's the same thing. Do you train by not looking about at what wattage you're holding, or what pace you're running, or what heart rate you're holding? Do you train by not looking what weights you're putting on the, the you know, the bar? Mm -hmm. Come on, I mean, and if you think that nutrition and hydration isn't going to upend your day, well, good luck. Because two things happen. One, people blame fitness for their lack of um, result that they're desiring. And most of the time, it's actually fueling and hydration. They've done plenty to have the outcome that they're desiring because the brain doesn't project out something that's that unrealistic that they missed it by that much. One. And two, you just wasted a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It like, might have been quite uncomfortable as well. Yeah. But, I mean, that's fine. If you want to be vague about it and not intentional with your training, right, then you're exercising again. And a great manifestation of this can be, just for the athletes, like, how do I, how do I be intentional? And the answer is, well, one thing you can do is when you get home from a long run or a long bike or a long whatever, literally write down, write into training peaks or on your journal, whatever, 
uh, three things. How much water did I drink during the whole time? How much sodium milligrams did I consume during the whole time? So keep your wrappers from whatever you were eating. And three is how many calories? And you just add all that up, and then you just divide it by the amount of hours you were out. There's your hourly rates. And then you can literally see, like, oh, okay, um, water was great, nutrition was great, sodium was low. Okay, now I know why I crashed, why I bonked. Or why I felt great. Yes, that's the number one. <laughs> if you feel great, you definitely want to capture that information. Yeah, and in good simulations, you're also having the breakfast, so you're not eating and drinking in the first hour or two as as you usually would. So you have to factor that in. Yeah, 45, right? 60 you're, minutes, yeah. Especially in triathlon, you're not going to eat in the first hour or two. You're swimming. Hopefully not drinking too much in the first hour. <laughs> uh, exactly. And so therefore, your breakfast needs to be good enough to get you as far into the event as possible. And that's the other thing. So many people who say to me, like, oh, I just wasn't hungry, or I'm, I don't typically eat that much. Okay. Well, that's all good and fine. One, we already talked about why it's so important with regards to your outcome. But B, you would rather eat gels and chews and that astronaut food or would you rather have a bigger breakfast of your own familiar foods that you can sustain that longer into your day and therefore hold off on the gel and chews and junk that you're going to have out there? I sure know that I like real food to sustain me longer. Why do you train in zone two when you will be trying to race in zone three? Well, why don't you answer that? Purpose of the long run is to get a stimulus of aerobic training and a long one so that you can also practice other inputs as well. Why do we do a majority of our training in zone two? So the reason we keep it at zone two is so we can accumulate more training, more volume, more stimulus without getting overly fatigued and having to limit ourselves. Okay, so that's the primary factor. And then also from an oxygen uptake and a fat burning and the energy stimulus that we're looking for, the energy burning that we're optimizing. We'd rather increase the amount of fat we're burning as a fuel source and not have to rely so much on the glycogen source. And so zone two helps us with that dramatically too. Now, both are going at all times to think that one engine is shut off is unrealistic, but we want to utilize more from the aerobic fat-burning energy system and gently over time reduce our, our dependence on glycogen anaerobic uh, sugar-burning fuel source as part of the energy system. So if we can get that ratio from, with many endurance athletes, when they start training is about 50-50. Sometimes they've even um, really destroyed, is probably the right term, their aerobic energy system, the fat burning one, because they've always trained too hard or very hard. And so the anaerobic energy system has really grown to be quite a powerful factory in their body. And that brings about other needs and concerns with regards to sugar in the body and why the body is starving for glycogen um, in their day-to-day. -day. So that's sometimes a, a warning sign too. And uh, that we want to rebuild that in those cases or because that can sometimes be like 20% aerobic, 
80% anaerobic glycogen sugar burning, but most are around 50-50. But we want to flip that ever so gently to about 65-35. If we can get it to 70-30, even that would be amazing. It's unrealistic to think it's ever going to get to 80-20. That's a lot of miles and a lot of time, like years of zone two work. Yeah, that's professional. Like literally, even there, it's hard to do because again, enough of the racing and the specific event work keeps them. That twenty percent is hard to you know cross into. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so, but yeah, so that's the the one of the aspects. But then also keep in mind, right? This heart rate suppression of training over time with volume and fatigue makes the body feel if done right, and you have enough zone two time in your legs, in your body, cycling, running especially, that what feels like zone two, sensation-wise, on race day is actually zone three. And so that's the big thing to keep in mind. You will look down on race day with fresh legs and a fresh heart and be like, whoa, my heart rate's whoa, high, oh my gosh. Well, it'll actually settle in quite nicely into zone three or upper zone three for, let's say, a marathon. And the sensation of that heart rate will be like what you felt like in zone two in training. And so the mind is at ease and is familiar with that as well. And that's not a joke. That is uh, zone two. Your heart can become so strong that operating at zone two can be exhausting for the muscles. I mean, it's brutal yes. to keep going that fast. Yes. Yes. And that's usually the threshold. Once you've gotten to a point, and I would say about 30% of my athletes ever get to that point where they're going, oh my gosh, zone two, I have to kill myself to just get my heart rate up into zone two. Yes. Yeah. I rarely and see it these days. Then you know they're getting super fit and super strong. Now we do need to test again. Oftentimes I often see that as a warning sign that they might need some rest um, that we might be overreaching a bit, but it doesn't necessarily disappear. It just becomes from an effort level a little bit easier, but they notice like, oh my gosh, I'm running pretty fast at zone two, or I'm psyched. My water jet zone two has gone way up. Like I, I really got to focus. Whereas when they started, it was more like, oh my gosh, I keep having to walk. I keep having to coast on the bike. I keep having to keep an eagle eye on my heart rate or my pace on the um, my wattage on the bike because if I go just a tick too hard I'm immediately into zone three mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the whole narrative flips I want the athlete more in tune with feel than I want them in tune with heart rate I would like them to advance past heart rate pretty quickly within nine to twelve months that I can tell them easy, medium, fast, and they know that zone two, zone three, zone four, and they don't even need to look at a watch because they know that their heart rate is pretty much at this rate when I'm feeling like this, and therefore it's probably within one or two beats. That means you've been paying attention, and that means that's why so often I go on feel, and then I'll mix in some zone training, and then back to feel, mm -hmm. and then combine the two, and then throw in some pace. And these are all just markers. They're all just sensations so that we can continue to dial in RPE accurately. Yeah, that that totally saves it. I mean, if you if you're looking at lactate threshold 
being pushed upward over time through increased fitness. But then the other thing is aerobic threshold one also moves up over time. And so pegging zone two based on lactate threshold, therefore, is not entirely valid. And it's just totally, effort solves that problem. Well, as does the lactate curve. Well, I mean, unless you have that data, in which case that's great, but most people don't have yeah. lactate data. But most, yeah. but most exercise physiologists in a lab will still do that wrong, and they'll still just mark 2.0 and 4.0 millimole per liter of blood, right? And that's, that's incorrect. How would you do it? Well, you'd look for when the markers, when the lactate actually increases, not just because the number two has been hit. Yes. Okay. I'm with you. You look for the rise. You look at the entire graph. Yes. And that could be at 1.6. That could be at 1.4. That could be at 2.4. Like that's some serious differences. That can be a difference of 40, 50 watts for some people. If it's instead of 1.8, you mark 2.4. If we're instead of 2 and 4, you actually mark 2.3 and 4.8. But the curve will tell you. There's some th- there are three distinct linear outcomes of a good lactate curve. This emailer was questioning how to do an LT test correctly, and they're talking about the five by one one mile repates. That's not an LT test. Let's be clear. L- lactate threshold test is where you take a blood sample and you are getting pricked in the finger or the ear to measure the amount of lactate accumulating in your blood at a different level of effort on the bike, in the pool, or on a track, or on a treadmill, or on a trainer, as you increase the effort. So that's an LT test. The five by one mile test is merely um, a pretty vague way to determine heart rate zones. And I say vague because this, there's no exact science to this. I've seen enough of them that I've gotten it down pretty well. But then that is only to cross-reference with, let's say, the training peaks zones that Joe Friel has the formula in. And then maybe another, you know, whatever's on your watch, on your Garmin or whatever. So you use these inputs and to really narrow down what is the exact range or close to exact range for you. Just another way to narrow down the scope of what it is, what your personal profile is. My five by one mile test is by no means perfect in a vacuum, nor is Joe Friel's values on training peaks perfect in a vacuum. Nor is the one on our watches perfect enough. But if you take enough of those and continue to cross-reference and and do that, you're getting a pretty close, I would say, 90% accuracy. And part of this question was also around this listener being frustrated that their times weren't improving or the heart rates weren't showing the work they've done. So the five by one mile test, when done, when you've trained correctly over time, 16 weeks, eh, sometimes 12 weeks, but 16 to 20 weeks is usually a time to retest. Now, in a perfect world, 
heart rate actually stays the same, but the time that you ran the one mile gets faster. That's a great outcome. And I just had an athlete test like that. He improved the whole minute in his five by one mile in, in about yeah 16 weeks. So he was at 7.30s and now he's running 6.30s. And we kept the zones the same, the exact same numbers. All, all five, not exact, but like the same range, like 172 to 180 heart rate from the first time to this time. So the zones stay the same, but he's clearly running a lot faster at that zone too. And yeah, there could be some science and some discrete adaptation of those zones, but clearly the body is absorbing what he's doing. And if in our next test, the drop is minimal or non-existent or has gone the other way, well, then we need a different stimulus. But for now, we're going to keep doing what we're doing because the body is still absorbing it like a sponge. Now, another way to see it, though, is that some people have the same time. The five by one miles are the same splits, but the heart rate has changed. It might have gone up. They're pretty fresh, and the, the effort level of the mile repeat costs them more or less. Now, we want to see the heart rate go down at the same paces, but sometimes it goes up. So is that fatigue? What's going on? Did they not run hard enough on the first test? So then it becomes a little bit of a sleuthing job. But similarly to the first outcome where the same heart rate, faster times, same times, lower heart rate, it's costing you less heartbeats. The heart is pumping not as hard for the same pace. It shows the level of fitness gains. And so there you have to be careful not to adjust the zones too much because the adaptation is also happening. But many will see that and interpret that and say, what, I have to adjust my heart rate zones even lower? No, no. It, you know, We need to take a look at more data as well as keep those the same and maybe redo the test and ask the athlete to run a little bit harder <laughs> and freshen them up a little bit because there might be some heart rate suppression in there that kept the heart rates lower. So we need more data. How do you how do you advise people to run the five by one mile? So just you know, for those listening who aren't super familiar, the five by one mile test is where you literally go to a track or anywhere and you run a mile as fast as you can. You take one minute of rest and then you just repeat that cycle. One mile, one minute of rest, one mile, one minute of rest. You do each mile as fast as you can. How do you advise people to pace the individual miles? Don't pace. Just go as fast as you can. Okay. Blow up. If you can blow up, blow up. Gives us a lot more data and insight than your measured controlled output. There's nothing worse than a test that we see. Heart rate is what it is. It's all relative. But then like the first mile was 720. The next one was 718. The next one you're starting to get warmed up and feel better and more courageous is 710 then the fourth one 655 and the final one 647 that's great good for you you just did a different workout that's called five by one mile repeats getting faster every mile <laughs> um but you're going to go out and have to do it again next week and blow yourself up the good thing about that is that it gives us a number to start at start next time at the 647 <laughs> 
and it puts enough fear in the person. But once again, learning to let go and just doing an action and not overthinking, just go. It's a first step in this process for a lot of new athletes of patience and letting go. If you have the patience to do zone two work, you will be successful in, in endurance events. And if you have the ability to let go of ego, of expectation, of outcomes with regards to a timeline by when you want to be fit, you will also have a chance to be successful because those set up your ability to be patient enough for zone two work, which is incredibly frustrating and humbling and <laughs> takes your ego and throws it in the trash. All right, we received another email from one of my athletes in this case about not feeling very rested during their rest week <laughs> and rest weeks being new to them and not liking them. I get this from a lot of athletes, actually. They don't like rest weeks. Can we not have rest weeks? I don't like my off days. I don't like my Monday rest day. I feel terrible on Tuesday. Well, that should be telling you something. <laughs> this is going to get profound, they, by the way, for those who are going to miss it. <laughs> Because rest days and feeling crappy after a rest day or a rest week is exactly how it should be. The body likes its steady little homeostasis to do the same thing every day. I like to be in my default mode network where everything's controlled and I know said outcome and I'm, my prediction machine is working with my effort level, with how I'll feel, with my needs for the day, energy needs, right? And so changing that makes us feel crappy for sure. Even for a day, we've lost the momentum but it also takes us out of what we've talked about on this podcast, the fog of fatigue. We were so tired oftentimes when people say that the rest week left them feeling crappy. It triggers sort of like this, like all of a sudden I put expectations on my body and quite honestly on my psyche. I am rested. I should feel like this. I should be stronger. I should feel faster. I should not have this feeling of fatigue. And a rest day or a rest week is not necessarily going to make you feel amazing. It just moves the set point of where you're starting again from and sort of how you re-engage with training and how you've absorbed the training and giving your body a pattern of, I will get a break and I will have the opportunity to absorb the work that I've done. And it's so important. And just because we don't feel it doesn't mean it's not working. It's the same as zone two work, right? Just because you're walking <laughs> to keep the heart rate low doesn't mean it's not working. The heart doesn't know what you're doing. But there's a common, common complaint and insight and uh, sensation that athletes go through with regards to rest days and rest weeks. They feel off. Yeah, they feel weird. But again, I speak only because I feel the same way <laughs> many yeah. times. And if you think right? a rest week is bad, wait until you taper. <laughs> yeah, well, there's taper. Well, then uh, the psyche plays an even bigger role there, right? Because now you've, you, you layer onto uh, the expectations. You layer on now race and getting closer to desired outcomes. So... I know from myself that when I take a rest week and that first day back, I already have to talk myself out of the 
prior to the workout, don't expect like this, like prancing through the woods, like as if, you know, I'm perfectly, um, you know, 20 pounds lighter and like this perfect stride and like I'm running at six, 10 miles. Um, no, it's going to feel awkward and laborious and sort of heavier than I want to. And it's going to take a while, but guess what? I'm six months in, I'm eight months into serious training and I'm not injured and I'm actually absorbing the training load. I actually noticed my paces and my wattages and my effort levels going up pretty consistently over the months and I'm healthy and I'm mentally fresh and I'm motivated to train and I still have my eyes on the prize. All those little inputs are signs that the training's working and being absorbed and adapted. I'm not irritated. I'm not, I don't have a lot of negative self-talk. I get validated with good training outputs, excuse me. Um, and again, I'm not injured. I can show up consistently and I'm getting fitter. And that flywheel is really moving now because I'm consistent with my training. I get in more training. My paces are improving. My waters are looking better. I'm in a good mood. I'm getting validated. My consistency is paying off. Here we go. <sighs> motivate, 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 motivate. Faster, faster, faster. Flywheel flying. But I need to give myself that rest. I need to give myself that time to adapt and absorb the training load. Because if not, I'll wake up in about, what do you think, 10, 12 weeks? And I'm not saying you're necessarily going to be injured, but you will definitely be in the fog of fatigue. 100%. And the fog of fatigue is a weird space to be in. You think you're getting fitter, but you're actually treading water. And you don't know how tired you are until you ask your body to really do something outside of that typical training week or volume, and you fizzle out. Or it's actually the same speed as your training speed, <laughs> which is which is frustrating, but what many people tend to see. And the same athlete actually asked a different question completely from a different angle, not related to rest. Well, maybe in some ways, but that is with drinking beer or wine. I'm not going to go into the heavy liquor right now. But uh, with drinking during the week or more of a specific question around, do you have a good rule of thumb for drinking during training blocks? We all went pro in something other than the sport we endeavor. <laughs> Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> this, this is, is going to be great coming from a German <laughs> person. Beer drinker. <laughs> yeah. Um. This is a lifestyle, right? Let's keep that in mind. We're not like that um, that meme or YouTube video of triathletes going to bed at 8.30 and drinking bubbly water at the party and because they have a 5.30 wake-up call because they have a 7 a.m. ride and they need to get in 800 calories before 6 a.m. for their 7 a.m. ride. And No, we're not robots. And so... For me, the beer and the wine is something I'm still living my life. And if I'm restricting myself of something that I'd like to do or I enjoy doing, then 
I start questioning the lifestyle and the motivation, and I sort of have to wonder where I'm heading with this. Now, don't get me wrong. I have definitely stopped drinking when I'm getting ready for Kona or I'm getting ready for big events. It just sort of, it has nothing to do with the drinking. It has to do with, it's another way I'm telling myself you're in a serious phase of training and you care dramatically about the outcome. But it's not because, you know, the beer is detrimental to my health and my um, training ability. Now, okay, we're not talking three, four, five beers a night here. We're talking about a beer or maybe occasionally a second one in those training blocks. But, or, or a glass of wine. But the argument is sleep and your recovery. And you can pay attention to that. You can see how your body reacts to alcohol with regards to sleep. I mean, the technology is quite readily and easily available today, these days. But again, you just have to reflect and think and work through what this is you're looking to achieve, how important it is to you, and how it is integrating in your lifestyle versus creating any type of repression or limiting yourself on something. And I've gone through this conversation a lot for myself of, you know, because I do like beer and I like a fair amount of different beers and high quality beers that usually have a high level of alcohol content. But I regulate it around sort of what my priorities are with training. And I can honestly say the last few years, my priorities with training and outcomes haven't been very high. So therefore I have to stop drinking beer. <laughs> but I also know that for serious events, I have stopped. So this is personal preference. I'm not gonna sit here and preach from the mountaintop, don't drink, what are you doing? This is training, not exercising, and it's your performance outcomes. Those are questions you will want to ask yourself and how you are able to process the alcohol, how it's integrated in your lifestyle, if it's of detriment, if it, you know, if it's just something you have and it's not a big deal. So much nuance in this. But as a coach, with the athletes I'm working with, if the question comes up, let me answer it this way. It's a question of what's your desired outcome and who do you want to be? And if this is something that you've been working at for a while and you're missing those last two or three or four or 5%, well, maybe we should explore that and taking these things to that next level of that seriousness. But if you're looking to participate or you're looking to experience said event and therefore, but you live a pretty, you know, regular lifestyle would that you have a beer here or there on a weeknight or every night or more on the weekends or whatever that is. And this training and this um, focus on the outcome as well as the journey integrates with that and you're not taking it or yourself too seriously and that seems to create good harmony in your environment when it comes to family, when it comes to career and when it comes to social life. All, all factors that play in. 
on my track club, there's a guy who will definitely remain nameless, and he is one of the fastest athletes in San Francisco by far. I think it's probably like four or five people faster than him. And he did a sober January, and he said it was the worst month of his life. He said he ran worse, slept worse, he felt worse, he had less energy, uh, was less happy, and <laughs> this was four weeks of not drinking. Yeah. It's a valid input. I think it's a very valid input. It's individual to everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. Like my, my aura ring blows up if I don't drink for a night or two. And then I'll have like three beers and I'll have a great night, you know, like a 93 the other night. Oh, I've never had, had any heavy beers and I had a 93 sleep score. I was like, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to this. I was like, I was like, Emily, look at this thing. Like, this makes no sense. I, I'm I'm struggling with my aura ring lately anyway. Um, as you know, you've heard me rant on it, but I'll, I'll just share quickly. Like, it, it's like there's nights where I'm convinced I had a great night's sleep and my aura ring will say it was crappy. And then there's other nights I've had a crappy night's sleep and my aura ring said I had a great night's sleep. And it's like, I'm losing touch with like, that sense of, yeah, no, I, I don't need the aura ring to tell me if I had a good night's sleep. I had a good night's sleep. I feel fine. I feel good. My workouts are good. My training is good, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Aunt Emily laughs every morning at me because she's like, all right, well, how are you feeling? And then, well, what do your ring say? And she knows I can't tell her, tell her how I'm feeling until I check my aura ring. Oh, God. <laughs> it's that bad. So, but luckily I have my watch that tells me similar data but in a different format and so i again just like heart rate zones um i sort of combined the two along with rpe and sort of know inherently that worked well but back to the alcohol question now don't get me wrong hrv is pretty clear on the alcohol yeah, it's a lagging indicator, though. And I wonder if that's what's going on with you, Chris, because, for example, um, you can get great sleep, but it will read as not great sleep because you did a workout prior. And yeah. that's confusing. Yes. But HRV is, to me, an accumulation over time. Um, and yeah, so, of course, I can see that my body is processing and working through the alcohol until a certain point of the night, and then the HRV numbers spike beautifully. It looks like, you know, just like, it, I mean, it's very clear. It's very clean and so forth. And so, sure, if I'm increasing my training load and I'm looking for a bigger adaptation over a period of time, I will hone in more onto that number and how my body's responding to alcohol and the training and the overall accumulated load and will surely factor that in. Don't get me wrong there. And again, it's individual to everybody because as we both know, there's plenty of people who have an issue with alcohol and their body responds differently to that. And so, you know, I'm definitely not saying go ahead, go nuts, do what you want. Just know yourself, know thyself. Know thyself, know thyself, know thyself. Which brings me back to the camp. It was an opportunity for many athletes to get to know themselves better. <laughs> you guys tell that I'm still like bothered by that. It's it's a theme, right? Just to close on this. The thing that I come across in all my coaching, across all my athletes, is I want them to step more to the edge of control. 
And you and I talk about this, David, on our Tuesday calls, the edge of control where we let go and we step beyond control, beyond the edge. That's where growth happens. And if you can't get to the edge to look over the edge and look into the darkness and into the chaos and not be willing to take a little step into that direction, you're not going to expand your horizon. And this is what I want all of us to understand. That's the beauty of endurance. It allows us to do that exercise in a different realm. And we get the benefits in all realms. So ask yourself, where have I stepped closer to the edge today? Where have I challenged my beliefs? Where have I challenged my body? Where have I challenged my mind? And am I expanding? Hopefully not contracting. Or am I just staying the same? And if we're expanding every day, ever so gently, the back to the progression versus pro pro perfection or progressing just a little bit every day, within that is exactly that. Stepping to the edge and pushing ever so gently further. When Truman in the Truman Show gets to the edge of his horizon, that's what we're expanding. We want to expand our universe, our world that as we know it. And you only get to that by getting to the edge where Truman steps into reality. That's our chaos. That's our beyond order. That's our darkness. That's our fears. And it takes courage to go there. But when you get there and you expanded your own real estate, your world, it's a better place to be.